Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I'm your host and I'm joined again by the co-host Luke Boggs. How are you, Luke? I'm doing good, Kyle. I could touch your face so for the, the first time. The wild thing is we are in the first, the same room for the first time ever on the well, show. Well, for the show. For the we, show. We've been in the same room a lot, but not yeah. not doing this. Yes. Um, so you're, you're hearing us together for the first time ever and you're going to hear us together a lot uh, over the next few weeks. Um, so on this episode, we're going to talk about the race in Georgia's 6th Congressional District between Karen Handel and John Ossoff. We're getting closer to Election Day and that one, um, and that one's got big national implications in terms of how uh, people view the strength of the Democratic Party, particularly in relation to the Trump administration. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit through what's been going on in that race since the runoff on April 18th. Uh, that one is coming up. Election Day is on June the 20th. And then for our second topic this week, we're going to talk about the budget that the Trump administration released. Um, it's a budget that is a stark contrast to the budgets released by the previous administration, giant spending cuts um, that are definitely in the vein of Trump's budget director, Mick Mulvaney. Um, so we're going to dig into that budget and what some of the impact would be uh, on the state of Georgia with that budget. Um, so let's just kind of dive into our first topic this week, the Georgia 6th Congressional District. So uh, John Ossoff and Karen Handel, they made it to the runoff on April 18th. Uh, we've talked a little bit about this before. We're getting closer to sort of the the deep part of campaign season where uh, Handel and Ossoff's positions are becoming very clear. They're getting a lot of press coverage. They're going to do a debate that uh, WSB Channel 2 is going to host um, on TV. That one's coming up in early June. Um, so let's just start with a little bit of where you think this race stands now, Luke. Um, there was a poll out that showed uh, John Ossoff up by seven points. Um, but do you think that this is a, a race that John Ossoff can win? Do we think it's a toss up? Where do you think it's at? I think it's a toss off. Uh, toss off. A toss off. It's a toss off. No, it, it's Ossoff a toss off. Yes, it's an Ossoff toss off. Oh, God. No, it is. I think it's a toss up. And I think that Ossoff is just barely favored in that uh, toss up because and I'm going to start nationally and kind of like laser focus in on Georgia. You know, we've had a couple special elections already happening in the Trump era. We just had one in Montana where the um, boggy slamming Republican managed to win, uh, which that that whole that whole instance was pretty interesting to me. A lot of people were like, why didn't the body slam matter to me? The most important thing you need to remember with that race was that two-thirds of the voters had already voted after that happened, so I wouldn't read too much into that. But back to the Georgia 6 and what matters for that is both of the major special elections that people really talked about with Kansas and Montana, they were both in districts that were significantly more red than Georgia 6th is. It was in states that are significantly more conservative. And so it was just a much longer haul for them to try to pull off a win there than the Georgia 6th. And pretty much, if you look at the numbers, if Ossoff performs at a similar margin uh, better than the average that those two seats then did, then like this is a toss-off, toss-off, I said it again, a (laughs) toss-up with... Uh, Ossoff being somewhat advantaged. So I would say, all in all, the fundamentals of the district are still very much so against John Ossoff. But he has a national environment that is very favorable to him. He has a lot of local and national energy behind him. 
unlike the other two races which I mentioned, the National Party has been pretty heavily involved, uh, both to the detriment and to the you know help of the campaign. Detriment in the sense that. Uh, the campaign has had a little bit more of a Washington focus than these other races had, and you kind of get too many cooks in the kitchen sometimes, but good in the sense that you have a lot more attention on the race and a lot more people are fired up about it and willing to come down and help us um, help get John elected, not just from district, not just from Georgia, but also from other states. With that being said, I I have been very encouraged, as you were mentioning, to see that despite this race having a lot of national implications, uh, both candidates, I'll give them both credit, have done better in actually focusing on Georgia and the you know GA6 and what actually matters to that community. Um, but I think seeing Ossoff do that is really, really encouraging because there have been concerns about you know him living next door to the district rather than in the district, even though he grew up there. Um, so to see the race go in a more localized direction has been encouraging. Well, I also think now that we've narrowed down from the, what was it, 18 candidates that ran in the first round, yeah. now down to two, and then the fact that both of these candidates are given a lot of airtime to discuss issues important to Georgia's 6th District, I do think that has helped in sort of shifting the conversation to issues that are important to the sixth. It's also helped in that we're now in a place between these two candidates where there is a debate over important issues. Uh, you know, particularly when you look at the affordable care act and the Republican efforts to repeal and replace that bill, um, that has become a real difference between these two candidates. John Ossoff has said that, you know, he thinks that there should be a bipartisan solution where both parties get together and they fix the ACA, they don't junk it. Um, and he and he's put out ads. He had a, a video with a man named John Armwood who um, talked about the CBO score that came out on the health care bill in this brief ad. He said that, you know, the Republican plan that would kick somewhere between 20 and 24 million people off their health insurance was un-American. So yeah, Ossoff put out that ad um, talking about the, the importance of fixing uh, the... the Affordable Care Act and, you know, continuing protections for things like pre-existing conditions. Karen Handel, I believe, said that she supported the Republican effort, um, the American Health Care Act that passed the House of Representatives last month. Um, and I, I think this is a, a really important division, not necessarily because um, there are sort of major health care issues in the 6th District. It's a, it's a district that's in suburban Atlanta. The uh, healthcare markets there are doing better than they are in a lot of rural areas. Um, but it is important in terms of just getting their perception of what, you know, they believe Congress's role in the federal government's role in healthcare should be. And it does seem like Karen Handel is endorsing a much more limited federal role. And John uh, feels differently. Well, yeah, I, don't, I, I think that's an oversimplification, though, because I think for Karen Handel, she like has to endorse that view because, you know, this is Tom Price's former district. He's been the leader in Georgia on healthcare issues for quite some time and, you know, obviously a national leader as well. And so there really was no potential, I think, for her to move away from that just because uh, of Tom Price's long successful record as an elected official there. It was inevitable that this is what her position was going to be. And so do we even find this surprising that this is the tact that she's taking? I don't the the thing that I find surprising is that it's a massively unpopular bill. The polling for this bill is terrible 
And, um, you know, even Greg Gianforte, the body slamming Montana candidate, he had kind of gone back and forth in an even redder district. He had gone back and forth. He had said in private that he felt, you know, he was glad that the House passed the bill that they did, but then he was very skeptical of the Republican proposal in public. Um, you know, it is true that Tom Price has played a role in this, although this bill doesn't even really get to Tom Price's vision for what health care is either. Um, I mean, it doesn't get to anybody's vision of what health care should be. Yeah, it's, it really it's doesn't. a political document to, to you know destroy Obamacare, and that's mainly it. But again, being you know trying to be fair and analytical about this, it, to me, it seems like Handel is really in a lot of ways disadvantaged compared to the other Republican campaigns that we've talked about because of the fact that Tom Price has been far more controversial and prominent in the Trump administration than the other officials that ended up in the Trump administration that caused these special elections to happen. You know, he's been in the news a lot more and had a lot more negative stories about him and a lot more, you know, real controversy. And even if you are on his side and you think he's right on that, it's, you know, pretty clear that like Ryan Zinke, like has just not been in the news as much as Tom Price has. Like he's not had as much of an effect on the narrative that we're seeing right now. I think that is part of the reason that Karen Handel has not had as much flexibility because if you're going to win Tom Price's district by, you know, crapping on Tom Price, that doesn't seem like a very successful electoral strategy. And the other thing I think, and I know we pointed this out, but I just come back to this as something that's really important is that this is a highly educated district. This is a district where people very heavily came out against Donald Trump, uh, not necessarily for Hillary Clinton. So the real question for me is at the end of the day, are these voters who did not want to vote for Donald Trump and were willing to cross the aisle for Hillary Clinton, if that decision-making process is going to be the same and they're going to end up voting for Ossoff as a way to uh, follow the intention they had in November of not letting Donald Trump be president if they think that is now translating into my congressman needs to be a Democrat too. Well, I think there is some sensitivity out of the Ossoff campaign to this argument because he is not, you know, he's gotten a lot of money, a lot of attention from progressives around the country. He's, he gets uh, critiqued from, you know, both the Handel campaign and from outside groups that support Handel for all the donations that he's received from California. It was actually an ad that was rated as false uh, that was put out by the Congressional Leadership Fund that talked about, well, actually, there's been a couple of these. You've probably seen them, and, and we'll link to one in the show notes um, that shows people from San Francisco who are just like very, like, sort of stereotypically liberal who um, talk about how much they love John Ossoff. But the interesting thing is, John Ossoff is trying to sort of campaign with messages that appeal to different groups. And, and one of the primary uh, messages that he's pursued, particularly recently, is this argument around cutting wasteful spending. Um, he he has made videos about it. He's got a section on his website where he lays out what he calls an accountability plan. And he says that he found $16 billion in savings that come from these uh, annual reports from the Government Accountability Office. They identify programs and, and policies that are either fragmented, they overlap with other things the federal government does, or they're complete duplicate programs. 
Um, and so he's, you know, made a very consistent part of his messaging that he wants to go to Washington. He wants to hold Congress accountable for its spending and for the ethical issues. Um, and this is a message that's not, you know, one, I mean, I'm, I'm sure, I don't think progressives like, you know, get upset when they see that, but this oh, is no, definitely no, no. You're absolutely, you're absolutely wrong. They do get upset when they see that. Really? I've seen a ton of people in my Facebook news feeds and just conversation with other young Democrats. There's, there's a small contingent, you know, of people that, uh, really do not like Ossoff talking about wasteful spending so much because, um, in some ways they see that as embracing the Republican argument that government is usually wasting money and that there's no, you know, that this is not the emphasis that a campaign should have. And it should be far more about what the government can do to improve people's lives rather than being critical of the government. Uh, for me at the end of the day, uh, I think it is a productive message to be running on of trying to find ways to make government more efficient. And it's one that I think that particular district would be interested in because again, you know, they've been represented by a policy wonk for quite some time. So someone who shares that sort of view of politics, even if it is from a progressive dis- you know, uh, direction rather than a conservative one, I think it's a good route to go, but It definitely should not be ignored because I think regardless of how this thing turns out, it's going to be interesting to see to know that there has been some uh, dissension among the ranks of Democrats with Ossoff's campaign and that he hasn't, you know, like embraced single payer as the solution to the Obamacare problems that he's been pretty focused on uh, his message, which, as you said, was really anti-corruption based. Uh, from the beginning, which, you know, is, I think was pretty smart considering what's come out in the past couple weeks and been very much so focused on cutting waste and bringing high tech jobs to that district. And so that's, that's been interesting to me because I know we discussed earlier, you were criticizing Ossoff's campaign for not focusing on the district enough, but I think in some ways he really has, it's just sort of, Instead of saying like, oh, we need to like repair this particular part of the interstate, he's like focused on the bigger picture stuff that's going on in the district. Well, I guess this is interesting in terms of thinking about what is progressive messaging in a district that is suburban, relatively well off, relatively high, highly educated. A lot of these people that live in the sixth congressional district, they don't, uh, they're not eligible for a lot of government programs that progressives fight to defend. They're not on, you know, a public health care program. They're not, uh, you know, getting the SNAP program, food stamps. They're, because they're relatively well off, um, their concerns probably do tend to more lie around, um, you know, what their tax bill looks like. And uh, I think especially, you know, on a more local level, what things like property taxes look like. But, um, and, and to some extent, I I haven't seen much recently around transportation. I mean, they I know Ossoff, both Ossoff and Handel have said that, uh, you know, they would work with other members of Congress to help sort of support whatever decisions are made at the state level in terms of transportation. Like if you do get MARTA or other public transportation options extending into the 6th District, they both seem to support the idea that if the state wants to move forward with that, then they would work with uh congressional leadership to sort of help get some federal money to do that. But like, 
if you are running a progressive campaign, how do you target that messaging to people in the suburbs who may not be the beneficiaries of, a, of government programs like this and may be skeptical of something like single payer health care? They may not think that they would be winners under a policy like that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely complicated. And I think the campaign has focused on a lot of issues that are important to the people in that district. And I think that is what you should do. Um, I'm far, you know, as far as single payer goes, I obviously support that. And I obviously see what you say about that might not be something that would get that district excited. But I think in the conversation that Ossoff or any candidate in that district or any district has about ways to fix Obamacare and to improve the American healthcare system, that needs to at least be on the table, which I I think, you know, because I have not heard Ossoff personally speak about it, but I think it's something that he leaves on the table and it's not something that he's like radically pushing for as like the only way out. No, I think he's kind of put himself in the, in a little bit more of a moderate position, which is to just, he, I think it to some extent overstates the problems of the affordable care act. He said premiums are out of control. Um, that's not actually really true. Um, he, he is, he is correct on his assessment of what the Republican healthcare plan would do that it would, the CBO estimated it'd kick 23 million people off of health insurance. It would, uh, eliminate protections for preexisting conditions and it would lead to giant premium increases, particularly for, and this is relevant to the sixth district, particularly if you're somebody who's in your late fifties or early sixties pre Medicare age. But if you happen to rely on affordable care act health insurance, uh, your premium would basically explode under the Republican health care proposal. But yeah, I don't I don't think that he has I think I think he's played it a little closer to the center because I think he does have to message to the district the way that it is, a district that elected Tom Price by twenty points. Um, and then uh, also try to, you know, continue to provide outreach and energy to progressives. Um, I think that does sort of lend as to why a lot of the, what I feel like a lot of the grassroots energy is about is the anti-Trump energy, um, particularly highlighting the ways in which Trump policies on immigration and on um, the budget would harm people in the sixth district, people who are minorities, who are potentially undocumented immigrants. Um, You know, immigration has been a top line issue in the state of Georgia for quite a while. And and now it's taken center stage in the Trump administration with, uh, with sessions and with the, the ramp up in deportations from ice. Um, so I, I think that's where Ossoff's strongest progressive messaging is and speaking to the concerns of the progressive community, but then also, um, you know, that messaging gets split a little bit because of the fundamentals of that district. Yeah. And I think that's true. I, I a lot of the energy that I've seen, uh, for Ossoff and his campaign started off as a very like anti-Trump message. And as people tend you know, to interact with Ossoff more and get involved in his campaign, I kind of think that's what's kept people there. So, you know, it's the old, the old cliche, like come for the Trump resistance, stay for the Ossoff. <laughs> the, uh, the other piece of this that I, I think, is very important to progressives is is the issue of uh, you know reproductive freedom and, and abortion. Um, so one of the I think the most effective ads that I've seen in this cycle um, out of the Ossoff campaign is an ad where he has an OBGYN um, 
you know, basically just she's standing in a doctor's office. She talks directly to the camera. Um, and she says that the decision by Karen Handel when she went and worked at the Susan G. Komen Fund, um, the decision to help push funding, Komen funding away from Planned Parenthood was something that was completely unforgivable. I mean, the ad, she says, I don't usually get involved in politics, but as a doctor and a breast cancer survivor myself, what Karen Handel did was unforgivable. Um, and that's speaking to that funding dispute that she had with Komen uh, before she was let go there. Um, how do you think this issue is shaping this race? This is something that is, you know, a story about Karen Handel that's been in the news for a long time. I think it was people talked about it during the governor's race. Right? Yeah. Um, how do you think that that's shaping this this race? I mean, the the thing that I found interesting as soon as Ossoff kind of hit the stage, I saw like one of his palm cards and I noticed that pretty prominently on the kind of front side of this thing, the first bullet point on there was like support funding for Planned Parenthood. So he very much so from the beginning has been a very strong supporter of uh, women's health access to health care and all types of health care. So I am not particularly surprised that they're taking a lot of thought in highlighting that episode in and handles history because it's really been a part of his campaign from the beginning that this is something that was important to them. So the fact that Karen Handel has a record of being on the wrong side of that issue, I think is pretty unsurprising. Uh, folks might think it's a little odd considering the district that that's what he's pushing for. But I think this is actually one of those areas where Ossoff is playing offense on trying to get the upper hand on the healthcare issue. Because if you look at the data and you look at all healthcare outcomes, it tends to go better when you are funding Planned Parenthood and you're having a lot of access for all types of care that women need. So at the end well, of the, the, the other piece of that too, is that there are just Planned Parenthood clinics in places where there are not other clinics. This is sort of gets into a little bit of the, this Republican case that you can defund Planned Parenthood and then re-divert that money to like community health centers or, you know, other healthcare providers. But there are just places where Planned Parenthood has a footprint, um, not necessarily in the sixth district. There actually isn't a Planned Parenthood clinic in that district at all, although there's one pretty close, you know, so that that's part of it too, is that it's just, they have providers, they have a footprint in places that other community health centers don't. And that's a big problem that a lot of people don't understand because I know it's said a lot, but I kind of think since so many people misunderstand it, it's important to repeat, like the government does not fund abortions ever. And the money that Planned Parenthood gets is not a lying item in the budget that says Planned Parenthood gets so many dollars. It is that they get reimbursed for services that they provide and for a lot of people. And like you said, not particularly in the 6th District, but a lot of people nationwide, Planned Parenthood is not a provider. It is the provider. It is the only option for a lot of women and men, too, of some services that are really important uh, for people's health, like you know, mammograms and birth control and, you know, a ton of other services, Planned Parenthood is the only option in some areas. And so there's a reason why that is the case. And just because you, you know, you have a pot of money 
and there's less, you know, one less provider does not mean that another provider is going to pop up because there's a reason why that provider is already not in that location. And there's a reason that Planned Parenthood has been able to keep, uh, keep a location open there. So I think all in all, that is a really important part of the healthcare discussion that we're having right now. And I hope that we can get away from the talking points on Planned Parenthood and focus more on what they actually do rather than what fear mongers claim they do. Let's uh, let's shift to Karen Handel a little bit, but stay on this subject. So it's interesting to me that Karen Handel has backed away from this uh, issue a little bit with you know her the, her short stint at the Komen Foundation or come and fund. Uh, she wrote a book about this, but last I heard from some of the news reporting, she tried to say that the effort to remove funding, remove common funding from Planned Parenthood was something that wasn't really about abortion. I don't know if that's her just like trying to dodge the subject or, or if there's some detail there that we're missing, but it is interesting to me that it's not something that she actually steps up to defend very vigorously because it is really common in conservative thought, you know, particularly among evangelical conservatives and, and more religiously, you know, Christian-minded conservatives that, you know, they talk a lot about civil society and, and part of, you know, what happens when you limit access or, or limit the things that government does is those services still have to get delivered in some way. And their idea is that while you rely on religious organizations, community organizations, other non-governmental entities to you know, deliver women's healthcare services. Um, but one of the ways in which that is important to like religious conservative thought is that then the organizations that, you know, administer these services, they do it with you know, their own beliefs in mind. Uh, this is a big issue around the idea of adoption where, um, you know, particularly when the adoption bill in the Georgia legislature was killed, the, uh, the people who wanted to amend the bill in the state Senate, they wanted to allow uh, adoption agencies to not allow to not adopt out kids to LGBT couples, and that is part of fulfilling your, you know, your religious belief through civil society organizations. And I guess the generous way to look at it is that well, you can have organizations that you know have and maintain Christian beliefs, and so they follow Christian, you know, their belief of what's in the Bible, and then you can have organizations that are not, um, but you know, when you're looking at some, you know, limited dollars that go to this stuff, it, it does impact the access to services for people. But for for Karen Handel to go to Komen and then to try to shift the Komen Foundation in a direction that is in line with what I would guess are her beliefs about abortion and and the way women's health care services should be administered, um, this is like fulfilling the vision of going into a civil society organization like a nonprofit and then trying to reshape it in a way that fits your beliefs. Um, and so I, I guess to some extent, I'm a little bit surprised that she, you know, despite the fact that she wrote a book about this, she's not defending it as aggressively on the trail as I thought she might be. Yeah. And also I've found a lot of discontent with the, um, ways that Karen Handel has tried to attack Ossoff. This is something I mentioned the last time we talked about this, where most of her ads and most of the other Republican groups' ads could really be summed up with saying, John Ossoff is literally Nancy Pelosi. And that's pretty much their whole argument, is that, like, John Ossoff is actually a, you know, 
what, 70-something-year-old congresswoman from California who has somehow magically transformed into two people, and one of them is now running for the Georgia 6th, and that is the argument they're going to make, which is just so, so the early aughts. It's so just old, old campaign tactics, which worked when she was speaker, but now just feels like a sad boogeyman campaign tactic that they're trying to do i just i don't understand it i don't understand why they still try to do it because is nancy pelosi like a mobilizing figure for republican conservatives still particularly in the trump era yeah i mean you you have a republican congress and a republican president so why does nancy pelosi matter nancy pelosi is not controlling the agenda anymore yeah, and that's that's what I'm just been continuously frustrated about because, and this you know this is a, a continuous thing that you know bothers me. Not that I want to give Republicans any good ideas for how to campaign, but it's just like try harder, you know, like come up with like actual arguments for why you think someone would be a bad idea instead of just like using gray grangy footage of nancy pelosi and you know doing the same thing to ossoff and being like they're the same person um so i think we've you know at least through the first 20 minutes of this episode we've definitely shown our our bias in favor of of john ossoff a little bit but that is surprise that is something that uh was noticed by not by uh not about us but noticed by mike hassinger at georgia poll about the media generally um we'll talk in a second about an article that he wrote about he says uh that the um Ossoff is getting a gift from a slobbering media in terms of the positive media coverage that he's been getting. Um, but in the spirit of meeting Mike's uh, concerns that we'll talk about, what is the, do you think the case for Karen Handel? I mean, she is somebody who in some ways a lot like Hillary Clinton is somebody who's had a lot of different jobs and politics. She's been in state politics for a long time. She is somebody that has kind of kept her head down and done some of the work. Um, I think her, her supporters would say that particularly about her time on the Fulton County, what is it, the Fulton County Chamber of Commerce, I think. I think. Um, oh, well, uh, you know, to just second what you're saying, I think the argument for and against Karen Handel is the exact same thing, which is, and this is a line that I've heard not only Democrats say, but like a ton of Republicans say, is like, she is basically the Hillary Clinton of Georgia. Like, she ran for governor and just barely lost in the primary. She ran for Senate and, you know, in 2014, lost more significantly, but that was a highly contested race with a lot of really good candidates. So, you know, you can't falter as much on that, but it's just like... This is a person who has been around Georgia politics for a pretty long time and has held some high state-level positions. You know, she's Secretary of State. But at the same time, when she's been in those positions, at least in my opinion, her way she's operated, it has been fairly political, and it's been fairly much so focused on the next race and that like her time as Secretary of State was pretty clear uh, to me that it was a position she held in preparation for running for governor. So Karen Handel knows the game. She knows how politics works and she's, you know, kept her head down, but it usually is seen, at least to me as a, you know, a, uh, means to an end. So I kind of think if she does become the Congresswoman there, it doesn't necessarily mean that she's just setting herself up to run for something else. But at the end of the day, I don't see her holding 
that position and being as high profile as say Tom Price was. I think she will just be another one of the Georgia Congress women. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I'm looking at a national review article about Karen Handel and, and the number one point that the national review makes about Handel's potential victory in this race is that she is, she would continue Republican hold on that seat and that she is somebody who's signed the Americans for tax reforms, taxpayer protection pledge, which is basically a commitment that she won't vote to raise any taxes under pretty much almost any circumstance. Um, I think, I think that points out what I'm trying to say, because it's not just the media that I've seen kind of, you know, start drooling over John Ossoff. It's just like, a lot of the voters, a lot of the Democratic activists, a lot of the Democratic voters, a lot of the Democratic, you know, party people, you know, hacks like me, like we're excited about John Ossoff because he's John Ossoff, as well as because he's a like potential resistor to the Trump administration. Like those go hand in hand, where at least for me, like the reaction to Karen Handel being the candidate has mostly been woohoo go team go republicans not woohoo go karen handle and so i think and may and maybe this you know in retrospect maybe a couple weeks from now if karen wins we'll be like wow that was really smart but for me karen handle's campaign has basically been let's be as boring and generic republican as humanly possible and not weigh into the trump administration stuff too much because some people argue that's not true because, you know, she brought Paul Ryan down. She went, he had Trump for a fundraiser. But like... The, I think that's more for money, though. Right. That's what, well, that's what I was about to say. It's not, it's how she, at least from the media, you know, perception that I saw, because obviously I wasn't there. But just like from what I read about it and what I could see and what I heard from other people, like those events were handled incredibly boringly and it was basically like it could have been george w bush as president coming down and it would have basically played out the same way you know it wasn't like either one of them are really on the stump for her as much as it like they were excuses to get a lot of big dollars in the door for her campaign so to me that's the biggest takeaway from her campaign and why i think it's so hard to talk about it and why the media has had a much harder time in focusing on anything that she does is because her campaign is fundamentally boring. And I think that's the point. Whereas Ossoff, you know, he's had these really good ads that we've talked about when we didn't talk about, like he was tweaking at Trump and stuff like that. Like he's had interesting ads. He's had an interesting campaign and he's, you know, been polling pretty well. So those are a lot of reasons why it's a lot easier to talk about his campaign and that, you know, why most of our talk about this race has been on him. Because at the end of the day, if the headline on June 21st is Karen Handel wins the Georgia Six, like, that is a fundamentally boring outcome. And there's not really much of a story there because that's pretty much what everyone would expect if you asked them two years ago, you know, what would happen under, the, under these circumstances. The other, I think the other challenge for Karen Handel is that they're just isn't that long of a record that John Ossoff has I mean, he's 30 to attack. I mean, yeah, he's 30 and uh, you know, Handel's response to Ossoff's criticism of her over the Komen fund issue was that uh, you know, was, Oh, what has John Ossoff done 
to, uh, you know, fight breast cancer. Well, he's 30 and he's been a uh, congressional aide working on national security issues so that it doesn't necessarily fit in his profile. And then one of the other attack ads that she has recently um, is an ad called Caught, where she basically calls out John Ossoff for, uh, you know, over either misrepresenting or, or overselling his um, background as a national security analyst as a congressional aide because there was some of that criticism he got for not making it clear that he was a congressional aide for what, like five years, but he only had this top level security clearance briefly for like five months. The The other thing that I think is interesting on Handel is that if you look at the, the relatively brief issues section on Karen Handel's website, um, she mentions President Trump once. And she says, I support President Trump's budget proposal to increase national defense spending, and I will continue to fight to ensure that our military has the tools and resources necessary. Um, she actually mentions Obama three times. She t- says Obamacare twice, and then she says, you know, after eight years of the Obama administration's growth-stifling economic policies. So she she gets into a critique of the Obama administration, which, you know, as we all know, is not doesn't exist anymore. So, yeah, I do. I think that I guess it is part of a strategy on her part to try to just like tamp down enthusiasm in this race, because then you can get the solid Karen Handel voters out. And then if you just do enough to not just like make John Ossoff's people furious, then maybe, uh, you know, maybe they won't come out to vote. But it, I am struck by the fact that I don't get the sense that Karen Handel is like making a case for conservative policies in a way that stands out differently than any other Republican candidate in this race would have done. Well, that's not true. Like Bob Gray and some of the other like Dan Moody who were a bit more pro Trump. I mean, I think. The, it was tinted in different direction. But. The, the Trumpkins I think wouldn't be making this sort of conservative case. I mean, I just think, I don't know that Karen's, arguments are any different than any sort of generic Republican. Yeah. Okay. That, that I Trump agree with that. I agree with. Okay. But if we can, I'd like to, uh, put on our pundit hats for a minute and be horrible and just do, do the prediction business. What, what will be the reaction if Ossoff actually manages to win this thing? And then what's the, what's, what's the takeaway basically if he wins or loses, like what, what should we be thinking? How do you think people react? I don't. I think that there, particularly in Georgia circles, there's going to be the case that this is the first signal of the coming demographic wave that supports Democrats. That you have a district that's been in Republican hands since 1979, and now it's flipped. Um, I think that there is. I'm concerned that that case can be overstated because I do think that it is pretty plain when you look at the 2016 election results that this was a district that heavily supported Tom Price and was very skeptical of Donald Trump. And then Donald Trump, at least early in this race, and and to some extent still continues to be the animating force in this campaign. It's said to be a referendum on his presidency, which by, you know, basically almost any measure really isn't going that well. And so I think that there is a chance that you can overread the uh, results to this race. What do you think? I that that would be my biggest fear that people overread into it um because and this is something that we've discussed before and we'll continue to discuss and probably be uh discussing until we're dead there's a lot of problems with both parties um by the end of the day when it comes to running campaigns and having good messaging and being successful in those areas, the Republicans have done a much better job than we have. And that's something that we shouldn't just continue to accept 
Uh, and I worry if Ossoff wins that even if he wins by like two votes, the Democratic Party will be like, well, we did everything right. And there's no need for you know self-analysis in this. And we're going to, you know, take the House and Senate and the presidency in 2018, even though that's impossible. <laughs> you know, like that seems to be the attitude that comes out of uh, these wins that I think can be really, really counterproductive. And that's my main fear. I'm hoping that rather than taking that approach to it, that we use it as a learning experience and try to see what we did wrong, what we did right, and how that win can be, uh, you know, copied. Because especially on the state house and the state senate level, we have just been underperforming in a way that is really concerning to me that the party has not been able to do better in you know, recruiting solid candidates. And then when you have candidates, helping them raise money, helping them build campaigns, because from what I've seen is that if you, you know, start running in the state of Georgia, unless you start getting significant statewide attention, have significant signs that you're likely to win, that's when you get help. You get help when it's already clear that you're probably going to win rather than when you're a campaign that's in a favorable district that needs advice on how to raise money and how to run a campaign. You need that structure. There's not a lot of help to be had. And so I'm worried that if Ossoff wins, then that's going to be the continued way that the state party and the national party operate and that the support that the smaller campaigns need will continue to be ignored. All right. So with that, we'll move on to our second topic for this episode, and that is the Trump budget. So uh, Donald Trump released his budget. Uh, By the time you're hearing this, it'll be almost a week and a half or two weeks ago. Uh, But it is a budget that is a very um, stark contrast from the budgets that you saw from the Obama administration. Um, It does fulfill... What is not necessarily Donald Trump's vision, but what is the vision of Mick Mulvaney, the Freedom Caucus Republicans in Washington, um, and the the hardline spending conservatives who want to see government dramatically shrink? All right. So this budget is a is a pretty significant departure from where the federal government has been in terms of funding things like healthcare programs. It pulls $1.85 trillion over 10 years out of healthcare assistance programs to low-income people. That includes two major cuts to the Medicaid program, which over 10 years would nearly cut the Medicaid budget in half, which is a particularly interesting thing for Georgia because Medicaid, as we've talked about before, is an important provider of healthcare services in rural areas. And you know that just goes completely the wrong direction in terms of addressing healthcare issues and access issues in Georgia. There's also you know, really significant cuts to other basic assistance programs like the food stamp program loses $193 billion over 10 years. That's a 25% cut. Uh, Trump breaks a promise that he made to not cut the Social Security program. For whatever reason, he or Mick Mulvaney decided that there is a difference between what's known as Social Security Disability Insurance or the Disability Program and the other Social Security program you may be more familiar with. That's the the um, the money that elderly get uh, when they're in retirement. Um, and then it has big cuts to other Uh, what are called non-defense discretionary programs. These are things like scientific research, public health. The CDC budget takes a major hit uh, both in this budget and in the Republican health care proposal. So there's potentially big funding issues for the CDC going forward. And then the budget, what it does is it sets up 
uh, tax reform that is going to result in uh, basically very costly tax cuts that are skewed towards the richest people in this country. Um, And then lastly, it's important to note that for whatever reason, the Trump administration decided that it would be okay to make a $2 trillion math error in their budget by basically counting $2 trillion twice, counting it towards both reducing the deficit, which supports their claim that it would balance the budget within 10 years, and then allowing them through a subsequent tax tax reform package to um, use this $2 trillion to finance major tax cuts for wealthy people. Um, I mean, (laughs) who's surprised that they did that? I mean, because again, this is something that we've hit and a lot of other people have hit, but until they start acting differently, I think this is the thing to say is that they are willing to sacrifice almost any other objective for tax reform. And all they want at the end of the day is wealth care. They want the ability to cut tremendous amount of taxes for wealthy people in this country without having to get democratic votes. And the only way you can do that is through budget reconciliation in the Senate, which allows you to get away from the 60 vote threshold, which would require a bunch of Democrats to sign on to what they're doing and just have the 51. So at the end of the day, I would have been shocked if that had not been what they did, because that was the obvious move for them to, uh, you know, I'm surprised they didn't count that cut three times because that would just been, uh, blatant in how they've handled everything with government, which is none of the numbers matter. We're doing this because we can. And, you know, their goal is to cut taxes and everything they do will be in service of that. And any amount of hypocrisy or fudging of the numbers or anything else that they need to do to cut taxes, they will do it. But there's important elements in this budget for, for Georgia too, that, the state government relies on, you know, over 25% of the funding that the state government spends is actually passed through funding from the federal government. According to the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute, this was $13.8 billion in fiscal year 2017. Um, So having really significant cuts in federal funding, particularly ones that impact programs that low-income people rely on, um, that, you know, could have a real ripple effect throughout Georgia's economy, throughout economy, like more local economies in the state that are struggling. Um, You know, these are regions that the state has wanted to try to figure out a way to help. And federal funds play an important role in that, which is why it's important to talk about this as it relates to Georgia. Um, And this just seems to go completely in the wrong direction to believe that financing tax cuts for the wealthy by cutting, you know, social service programs for low-income people and thinking that that is going to help revitalize areas of Georgia that are struggling or areas of other states that are struggling just seems insane to me. That's because it is insane, Kyle. These people (laughs) do not know what they are doing. Like this is the, this is the whole, whole point because I mean, here, here's the thing that actually gives me some like legitimate hope is that the reaction from not just the Democrats, but like many of the Republicans in seeing this budget is that this thing is a non-starter. This is insane. Now, part of that is because every congressperson, every senator is really fundamentally uh, selfish for their district or for their state. And so this budget, there's not a single congressperson or senator that can't look at this budget and say, hey, that cuts this really important program to uh, my state. So I really don't want this to happen. So they sort of set themselves up for failure in that, in that this document is 
at the end of the day, I, I'm pretty sure it's Joe Biden that has said, you know, uh, don't tell me what you believe, show me your budget, uh, you know, something along those lines. And Because budgets are definitely 100%. They are a policy document, and they show what you believe policy-wise, but they are probably, out of all policy documents, the most political document as well. And I think that is a prime example of what this document is because it is a document for a political purpose and that political purpose is to cut enough money so you can have tax reform now what is the the political purpose though when you add trump to this equation so if you had a president mcmulvaney this would not be surprising at all this is what the freedom caucus believes this is what this far right wing of the Republican Congress has felt for quite some time, and they wanted to see these cuts during the Obama administration. They just never had the the power to do it. But Trump campaigned on increasing spending in certain areas if it meant helping people that voted for Trump. Um, you know, this is particularly Trump has not read this budget, Kyle. Well, yeah, I mean, but so I, I mean, if we look at every single policy proposal that has come out of this administration and every policy decision that gets made. What is exceptionally clear is not only that Trump does not care about the details, he literally does not know them. Because if you look at foreign policy, this is not something that people have talked about, but I think this is very important to realize on the foreign policy front, we really haven't done anything that much different besides the, you know, the immigration ban. But it's like whoever he appointed was put in charge of a department. It is their vision that is being put forward, not Trump's. Because, you know, the healthcare issue, who was in charge of that? It was Tom Price and Paul Ryan and the congressional leadership, and they are the ones that pushed it. They are the ones that made the deal that eventually got it through the House. Trump basically said, screw you, vote for this bill because I need a wing. He didn't say, I need this much money cut from the subsidies. I need this more help for my voters. He said, vote for this bill because the people I put in charge Push, are pushing this bill and created this bill, so it's their bill. Rick Mulvaney, he's the guy that does the, does the budget, so it is his baby, it's his document. Trump doesn't care. He doesn't care because he doesn't think it matters. He doesn't understand why it matters. This is the one thing that I wish almost everyone would start doing now when it comes to talking about Trump, is that he is not in charge of the policy details of his administration. He is for things that his advisors tell him he should do, and he starts to get disenchanted on them when Fox 5 or Morning Joe start to say that they suck, and then he yells at people because why does this suck? And then they try to explain it to him, and he just yells at them. So this is not Trump's budget. This is Rick Mulvaney's budget. It's not clear that he's in charge of anything. <laughs> he's in charge of making America great again, and whoever isn't, you know, else is appointed to a different position. They are in charge of the details of making, you know, doing that policy. And Mike Pence is in charge of all foreign and domestic policy. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so, like that is the thing that I think we need to just accept and just know as a fact is that like what Donald Trump is going to do is he's going to be on TV and say stupid shit and everyone else is going to actually do the work of this administration. And I think that actually makes a lot more sense if you look at everything in totality because it explains why there is not a coherent narrative coming out of this administration about what they want to do. Because, and this is again, this is not a new fact. This is a very well-known tried true position. The only thing that the contemporary Republican Party 
agrees on is that rich people are being taxed too much, that this is a great injustice to all mankind, and they will not rest, and they will accept any injustice until they cut taxes. Trump could kill someone. I am sure of it. He can kill someone on national television and say, hey, I just killed somebody. And they'll be like, tax reform. Yes, let's keep going. Um, so, you I mean, know, Gianforte yeah. tried. He didn't yeah, try I mean, him, like, it, it's just like the question that, him. you know, Paul Ryan called him up like, look, dude, I don't care if you body slam someone. Do you support tax reform? He's like, yes. And they're like, we're shooting you more money, man. You're going to be fine. <laughs> so, you know, that's what they're going to do. And like, I don't know. Like, I'm I'm scared for the Republican Party emotionally, because if they cut taxes, like, I don't know what they're going to do. Because that seems to be every single thing that they do, every decision they make, every political thing they cast aside, every moral objection, every concern about deficits is in wholehearted pushing for tax reform. And so that's the only thing they all agree on. And so that's the only thing that is consistent among all of these different plans and policies that the Trump officials put out because it is their idea and there's no consistency besides, oh, by the way, this would help us in tax reform. So we should concede that the reason that, you know, the reason that it's important to talk about the politics of the budget is that the president's budget, as he lays it out, really is almost by definition dead on arrival when it reaches the Congress uh, because the Congress is in charge of the entire budgeting process. It's going to be influenced by, you know, certain members on different budget committees who obviously have their own interests. And so you can't really look at this as a document that's actually going to become law anytime soon. There may be elements of it that do. Um, well, and to be clear too, like that's every budget, not just president Trump's budgets, like every single president's budget, is somewhat dead on arrival when it gets there. Yeah. Even when you're in a situation where you have both parties support, you know, in, in control, oh, sorry, one party in control of all the government. Which is very different than how budgeting works on the state level where Governor Deal or, or any Georgia governor has a lot of authority because they get to set what the estimates are for, for future revenue, which sort of boxes the legislature in. Um, so, it's, so it's a very different ballgame between the state capital and the Congress. Um, but the reason that it's important to talk about politically is because this, I think at least you, because Trump is not a very good manager, it does open them up to a lot of charges politically that the Republican president released a budget that has all of these terrible cuts in it. And then every Republican, whether it's the, you know, the farthest right person in the freedom caucus or somebody who's a moderate is going to have to run and answer questions about this budget and it is not structured in a way that pays any attention to the political needs or or what they need to do to protect members, uh, particularly vulnerable members in the House who sit in districts that Hillary Clinton won. I think, I don't know the numbers right off the top of my head, but I think if you flip all of the Republican districts that Hillary Clinton won to Democrats, I think you get maybe about halfway to Democrats taking back the House. That's about right, yeah. Um, so... It, in some ways, it, it's political malpractice, I would think, if you're somebody who supports Republicans or supports the Trump administration because they just hung out a bunch of their moderates to dry, and they're going to have to answer to this stuff. And Trump, just like through lack of management or lack of paying attention to the details, is just he's going to squander his own congressional majority um, and doom his own agenda uh, because Democrats, if they do take back the House, and particularly if they take back the Senate, they're not going to entertain anything the president wants to do. Yeah, I mean, again, 
I hate to keep harping on this, but I think it's because that this party only agreed on two things a couple years ago. Now they only have one thing to agree on. The two things they agree on are, we really don't like that Barack Obama guy, and we really wish he wasn't president, and we would love to cut taxes for millionaires and billionaires. So now that they've lost one of those other unifying principles, the other uh, only other one is that they want tax cuts, and they all have different ideas about what the American government should fundamentally look like. And so under that circumstance, and that's the way that they see the world, it's not surprising to me that they have so much trouble in coming up with a reasonable solution to the problems that the country faces because, you know, like members of the Freedom Caucus compared to like Rob Portman, the senator from Ohio, like they're not even on the same planet. Like they're in completely different worlds about what they think the government should or should not be providing for Americans. And, you know, it's, and that's not to diminish the, you know, problems that Democrats have, but like, Sure, we all have different positions on a lot of policy issues, but usually it's like about how far to the left it should be or how much money we should pump into something rather than like should something exist or not. <laughs> you know, like yeah. the range of dispute is so much smaller in the Democratic Party, whereas the Republicans are just completely, you know, spread out on what they believe should or should not be happening. And so. To well, me, and you also you also had effective party leadership for the Democrats for quite yes. some time that ironed out these differences within the caucus. I mean, this is sort of the story of how the Affordable Care Act gets passed um, that we've talked about before. It's the value of that leadership in ironing out those differences and getting everybody to come to the table, agree to something, and then leave happy with what they agreed to um, is something that I think what happened in the first two years of the Obama administration with an all Democrat Congress. And it's something that explains, I think a lot of the failure on the legislative agenda for Republicans um, this year. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's very true. And I think what is interesting to me, I think actually supports what you just said is that the Senate has seemed to have far less trouble than the house has. And I think that is because is Mitch McConnell has a far better hold and understanding on his caucus than uh, the House Republicans do. Because even, you know, situations like Betsy DeVos, where he had two defections, that's all he had. And so, you know, he still had enough votes to get her through. So I think it will be really interesting to see how the Senate deals with the health care bill. Because I think that will be, while still a policy I don't want to see. I think the process is going to be far less just convoluted and kind of crazy. Um, and a little bit less of a game of hot potato. Well, I think they take it. I think they take it more seriously. Yeah. I think the, and it's almost by necessity because you can't lose more than three Republicans on any vote on any issue. And if you lose three, you have to get Pence to come in and, um, Break you know, the tie. And, and break the tie. So I, th- you know, I think this that's an interesting thing too, because you know it's a little off topic then from what we were starting to discuss. But it seems that the Senate has maintained to be the saucer that cools the tea from the hot tea from the House, even though they got rid of the filibuster. And it seems like they have not thrown caution to the wind in the way that the House, led by Ryan, has done. And so, well, and I would note they haven't gotten rid of the legislative filibuster, but the true. two, the two primary 
legislative agenda items they're working on right now. They're trying to bypass the filibuster, but that doesn't apply. And it actually boxes them in on a lot of the other issues that the Republican Congress is going to have to face. Yes. And that's why it'll be interesting to continue to watch what they end up doing with both of the big ticket items they have on their plate. Um, So with this budget and all of the pretty incredible cuts that are being proposed, how much of this do we actually think is going to happen, if any of it? I think it's going to be difficult for almost any of it to happen. I mean, I think that when it comes down to it, you're going to have a lot of infighting, particularly in the House, particularly with some of the moderates who who will have to defend some of these programs. Um, You may even have Freedom Caucus members who nevertheless step up for funding for programs that are in their own district. You know, there's big cuts to Habitat for Humanity in this budget. And there may be members who have Habitat organizations in their own district who don't want to see that funding cut. They may feel like, you know, the the Habitat organization is doing a good job connecting people to housing. That's a It's a relatively small example in terms of a budget line item, but it's something that's real to a member of Congress. And so once you get through all of that infighting, once you get through how politically unpopular many of these cuts are going to be, and as the Trump administration continues to lose political capital and all of the other nonsense going on with Russia and everything else, I just don't know why you would risk your career to vote for really almost anything significant in this budget. <laughs> anything significant in this administration, I would say so far. Um, you know, and the the other program I think we should talk about because it's one that both personally affects both of us, but also probably a good portion of our listeners, uh, considering what I think our demographic data probably would be, uh, public service loan forgiveness program. This is a program that um, allows folks who have college uh, loans from the federal government to get those forgiven if they work in the public sector or nonprofit sector for 10 years. Uh I currently work at Habitat for Humanity, so there's two large things in this budget that make me unhappy. Um, and, you know, I that is a nonprofit organization, and I hope after uh, going to further my education that I could end up in government service or not the nonprofit sector. That would be my preference. But without this program, I don't think I'll be able to do that. And I, I'm sure there's a lot of other people that are in that position. So what do you think about... Uh, that particular program, and do you think that is a good example of the types of programs that the Trump administration might be successful in cutting since it doesn't necessarily affect a particular region? Well, it's more of a widespread program because in a lot of ways, while uh, people of all economic class can take advantage of that program if they have loans, it is a program, I think, in a lot of ways like other welfare programs in that it is pretty diffuse among the population and not concentrated to the point where there is a, you know, single representative who is the like public service loan forgiveness program congressman. Yeah, I do think you I think it's vulnerable because you don't know which member is going to step up in committee to defend that program or, or step up in some of the behind the scenes negotiations to defend that program. I do think it's interesting, though, sort of in the same way that um, the Affordable Care Act impacted 
the health insurance options for members of Congress and their staff. I'm sure that there are a good deal of uh, staffers in Congress who rely on public service loan forgiveness. You know, they may be the ones who go to their bosses and say, hey, you know, people like me who are young, who moved to Washington, who wanted to come here to try to serve our country and, and serve our state through working through our, for our member of Congress. I mean, they may be the ones that actually sort of talk about this behind the scenes and its importance. The thing that I think is notable about it is that it it is part of a larger package of cuts in the Department of Education that is meant to then shift funding towards a voucher program that uh, Betsy DeVos, the Secretary of Education, is a big proponent of. Um, and I don't know, there's a lot of arguments, and, and I think there are some viable ones about maybe restructuring how that program works, because one of the ways in which you can get a lot of your loans forgiven is to put your grad school or law school, uh, it, your education for that on loans, and then get them forgiven by working in the public sector. But the people who end up in those grad and law school programs um, tend to be people who come from more privileged backgrounds anyways. And so I think if you're if you are getting into a case about taking a very limited amount of dollars for education and then how do you most efficiently allocate that to people who most need it, I think there is an argument for sort of reshuffling that program. But the difference between what the Trump administration is proposing and what a more rational reform of that program looks like is they are totally indifferent to the harm that will come to people who have already relied on that program. It's well, not- you know, actually, I think that's a great point, though, uh, because so much of this budget, not just this program, is basically like they don't care if any of these programs are actually working. Yeah, they don't. They, yeah, they're just like, yeah, it's just screw it, just cut it. You know, it's like they, they basically are just across the board, let's cut everything we possibly can because, you know, f- again, this is not President Trump's budget. This is President Nick Mulvaney's budget. And President Mulvaney is interested in cutting as much of government as possible because uh, for him, a small government is a happy government. Well, and Mulvaney is the one who said that uh, they wanted to cut the Meals on Wheels program because the Meals on Wheels program doesn't get results. Like, what the fuck kind of results do you think the Meals on Wheels program needs to get? Do they need to get old people it back into make, employment? It does not make rich people richer. And yeah. so he is against it. I mean... That's the thing. It's a total indifference to the impact of the program. Um, and it, they're just totally blinded by an ideological commitment that we've talked about. And that, I think, is where this burns them, because they're just totally not sensitive to what the ramifications are of these changes. Yeah, again, and this is something that I point out a lot, is that I think fundamentally... The problem that the Republican Party has these days is that they don't actually believe in a affirmative act, you know, vision for like what America should be. They only have a, oh, we don't like what those other guys do. And so if, you know, Democrats say up, they say down. If Democrats say freedom is great, they'll say freedom is awful. You know, it's just like they, they are just like in reaction to the other side and now that democrats are out of power then they have nothing to react against anymore and so they're just going to kind of take it to its furthest level and i think at the end of the day people will be fundamentally unsatisfied by where that takes them yeah i think so um but i think that's a good place to wrap up the commentary on this budget no one is happy yeah nobody is happy except mick mulvaney 
Um, but with that, we will wrap up this show for the week and we will talk to you again next week. Bye guys. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, you can share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating and a review. It really helps other people find our show. Our interns this week are Alana Pierce and Courtney Clark, and we will talk to you next week. Take care, y'all.